We're in the Fixer Upper series. We're uh, doing that for the summer, and it's a show that, uh, that takes something damaged and actually renovates it into being something new. And in reality, we're all fixer-uppers. Amen? Amen. And, uh, and so we see this all through Scripture. And, and so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7. And we'll actually spend two weeks here uh, in Judges 6 and 7. And the story of Gideon, you know the story of Gideon, right? You probably remember hearing it when you were a kid and, and, and the great feat that he and his 300 men did. Uh, but... You know, the story doesn't start there. That's where the story ends. And today we're going to get a chance to see the entire fixer-upper. So what we'll do today is we'll look at the before. We're going to start to look at the divine transformation. And then next week we'll also get into the after picture and, and see the difference between the Gideon from the beginning of the story to the Gideon at the end of the story. Well, the, the, the story of Gideon takes place in the book of Judges. And to give a little bit of a historical context, Judges is the low point in Israel's history, Right? We, we come out of the book of Joshua where Joshua was intended to show in, in story form, in the, in, in, the, in the narrative accounts, show the idea that what, what Moses said in, in, in Deuteronomy is true, that obedience brings blessing. And we see obedience and we see, we see blessing. And then the book of Joshua does the exact opposite. It goes back to the book of, of Deuteronomy and shows how that one simple point of disobedience would bring curses is true too. So you get into the book of Judges and you see that disobedience brings curses. And so what you find in the, in the book of Judges is this cycle that is repeated over and over and over again. And it goes something like this. I want you to, I'm just going to go through this so you understand the cultural context and the literary context of what's going on here. It begins with sin, usually some form of Baal worship. And so the, 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 the nation of Israel allows Baal worship and they start worshiping Baal, which was a, a high sex and violence cult, right? And so there's a lot of sex, a lot of violence in this, in Baal worship. And so they would start, it starts with sin, and from there there would be suffering, um, where God would allow their enemies to inflict them. All of the things that he said back in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, if you, if you follow other gods, this is what I'm going to allow to happen. I'm going to allow other nations to come in, and they will pester you, and they will defeat you, and they will carry off some of your children, and so on. And so this is what was going on in the book of Judges. But things would get so bad that they would, there would be the next step we call supplication, which is a form of prayer. And, uh, and there would be repentance, and they would cry out to God and say, Lord, we can't handle this anymore. Would you come and do something? And, then, and the, by which the Lord would follow up with salvation in the form of a hero of some sort, a deliverer, some type of rescuer. The word for that in, in, uh, in Hebrew is a, a, a shofet, the shofetim, or judges. So... Uh, that's the idea that we get here. So he would send somebody who would rescue them. And once they were rescued, they would experience a time of shalom. I decided to use the Hebrew word because it starts with an S. It's easy to remember. But the word shalom uh, means peace and prosperity. It means that things are flowing the way they should. Everything is working in perfect harmony according to God's design. And then you know what would happen? When things were going well, they would forget the Lord their God. And they would return to sin. And this is the cycle that we see repeated over and over and over again in the book of Judges. How many of you would say this is probably the cycle that we see over and over again in our own lives sometimes? And, and we see that. And so there's a lot here. Well, let's start with Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. And uh, see where we're at in this context. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So here, what we, what we find is we see that they, they sinned, right? They, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They fell back into sin once again. Then we see the beginning of suffering because it says that they, they were turned over into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Let's continue to read verses 2 through 6. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Let me just stop there for a moment. So they were being pestered so much by the, the Midianites that they, they went into the mountains and the hills and they created little you know, dens and caves and places where they could hide. So when the attackers started to come, they would leave their homes and they would go hide into the den, in the dens and caves, their own sort of helm's deep for our, the Lord of the Rings fans, right? They would find some place to which they could retreat and they could go there and be safe from their enemies, at least relatively safe from their enemies. Let's uh, continue to read on verse 3. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Verse 4, when they would encamp against them and destroy uh, the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. These are bad guys. They're coming in and they're raiding things. They're taking all of their food. They're taking all of their animals. They're not leaving them with anything. So here they would work very hard to produce and then someone else would come in and take it away. Don't you hate that? But this, that's exactly what God said would happen back in the book of, Dan, or, uh, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy when he said, he said that you will sow and someone else will reap. This is exactly what, what God said would happen. Verse 5, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. I think this is actually a little bit ironic here too when you think about it because... The, the cult of Baal worship was all about, about sexual promiscuity. And when there's a lot of sexual promiscuity, you have a lot of unwanted pregnancies. No, I'm not talking about the U.S. I'm talking about Israel. But the, you see some similarities in the cultures, don't you? And so you have these unwanted children, when, which, which is, which is horrible. Actually, the thought of unwanted children makes no sense to me. Because children are a blessing from the Lord. Amen? In fact, uh, uh, our very own Ryan and Abigail DeRoos had their baby uh, this weekend. So Sydney Elizabeth DeRoos is now one of us, right? Uh, are you excited for that? Of course we are. Why? Because a life is a precious thing. And we understand that. And for those who want to know the specs, the height and weight and all, I'm a guy. Don't ask me, right? Ask somebody else. I'm sure that's out there on Facebook, right? But we celebrate that. But in Baal worship... Because of all of these unwanted children, that's where the violence would come in. And in order to offer a, a sacrifice to Baal, you would offer up these children and you would burn them in the fires. It's horrible, isn't it? And yet, here, what they, were, they destroyed their very next generation and then they're being outnumbered by their enemies. I think that's an, and that's an interesting thing when you think that through. And you, you see the damage done to their culture from their own actions, even being part of the cause of their own problems in verse 5. Let's continue reading verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished, greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here we see 
the suffering that they were dealing with, and we also begin to see the supplication as they cried out to the Lord. Things got so bad that they finally get on their knees and they start crying out to the Lord. It says in verse 7, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. Um, and, and I'll just pause it there for a moment. This is where we see the, the supplication taking place. It's the same cycle that we see all throughout the book of Judges, and we see it once again here. Now, because, uh, it says, because uh, of the Midianites, and they had cried out to the Lord, verse, verses 8 through 10, this is where it starts to turn positive. We see that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And so here we begin to see, we have a God, a God of salvation. He's saying, have I not delivered you in the past? I have always delivered you in the past. I have done this in the past. This is who I am. And, and, and salvation was going to be coming in the form of a judge or a heroic deliverer. Now, I should mention here, I think it's important that when we, when we look at the life of Gideon, we have to understand that this was that low point in Israel's history and God didn't have a whole lot to work with, in a sense. And what I mean by that is, is that Gideon was a flawed man. If you, read the, if you read what's going on before, he was a flawed man. Actually, during, he was a flawed man. If you read what he did afterwards, he was a flawed man. But yet we see God, in spite of all this, take a man from one place and move him to a completely different place in a very specific area. And it's a real fixer-upper transformation that takes place in his life. So we're going to look at the before section now. Let's take a look. All this was just to get the historical context, understand what's going on. Now we're going to be introduced to our, our hero of the story, Gideon. So let's look at verse 11. You read this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abbey's right. While his son, Gideon, threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So here's our first mention of Gideon, right? And where is he? I mean, this is the hero of the story. And what it, where is he and what is he doing? Right? He's threshing the wheat, right? So the wheat comes and it's, got, it's surrounded by the, what becomes chaff, right? And so the idea of threshing the wheat is you throw it into the air. You go to a high point, right, where the, where the wind comes through so that if you throw it in the air, the wind will take the chaff. And then you have the grain that falls and you get to the, you get to the grain, right? That's threshing the wheat. Typically, you go to a very high point, lots of wind, right? Where is he threshing the wheat? in the wine press. Why would he do that? It tells us to hide from the Midianites. So we don't get this image. Uh, th- th- this, is, this is a far cry from what we find at the end of the story when Gideon is, is taking on numerous uh, Midianites, right? This is a far cry from that. Where do we find the hero at the beginning of the story? Hiding. He's hiding. No different than the other men who have their places and their, their dens and their, their caves and their secret hideouts so that they have a place to run to. Here he's, he's, he's threshing the wheat in a place 
where no one can see because he's afraid that if the Midianites could see that there was grain, they would come and steal. And we, that's the position we find him in. And the first thing that I say, the first word that comes to my mind when I say, what was he like at the beginning of the story? I would say he was a coward. If you don't think, oh, that's not enough information to come to that conclusion yet, keep reading because we see that same character trait all the way through the beginning half of the story. We see him as a, as a coward. His, his method of dealing with the, the pesky Midianites, was it to rouse up an army and fight? No, it was not. It was to hide. It was to, to produce what he could in a small little area so that no one could find, uh, so no, no one could see him. He was a coward. He did not start the, start the story off as a hero. Is that safe to say? It reminds me of a quote by the famous uh, theologian Jack, Jack Handy who wrote Deep Thoughts. And uh, he wrote, So if you define cowardice as running away at the first sign of danger and screaming and tripping and begging for mercy, then yes, Mr. Brave Man, I guess I am a coward. <laughs> and uh, that's the, the image that I get here of, of our hero, Gideon, at the, at the beginning of the story. But then the angel of the Lord addresses him in a very odd way. Look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Think about that. The Lord sends an angel who tells him, The Lord is with you. And then what does he call? A mighty man of valor. The first time I read this, as I was studying for this, the first time I read this, I, I read that as sarcasm. Did anyone else really with me? You read that and say, wait a minute. I, I can just see the angel, you know, say, hey, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. That's how I interpret it. Right? And, uh, but as I, as I started looking at it and I started c- continuing to read the context, I had to come back to that verse and say, no, I don't think that is. I think that, that what's going on here is the angel was not addressing him as he was, but the angel was addressing him as he knew he would become. He, he knew what he was going to do. He, he knew that, that God was going to do it. And he's saying, you are a mighty man of valor. You just don't know it yet. You have no idea who you really are yet. You haven't come to that realization. In fact, then when I back up a little further and I look at the context of Scripture out of this, I, I see that God does that frequently in Scripture. Do you remember what God called Abraham? Here, Abraham was a man who was too old to have children. He was married to a woman who was too old to have children. She couldn't have children even when she was young enough to have children. And, and you know what God calls him? Father of multitudes. Father of multitudes? He didn't have a single child. Yeah, but God saw past that and saw what he would be. Do you remember Peter? He was originally called Simon, Right? And, and Simon was, was not exactly the, the, the most courageous guy in, 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 uh, in some sense. He's the guy who denied Christ, eventually denied Christ three times. Do you remember what Jesus gave him, the, the nickname Peter? You know what Peter means? Rock. He called him the rock. Long before he was very rock-like. Because Jesus saw the potential of what he would become. Actually, the same could be said for all of us. You know what the Bible calls us as Christians, as believers, people who have come to, to the Lord in repentance? He calls us saints. In fact, my daughter asked me this week, said, what does it take to be a saint? And I knew that in the context she was talking about in the Catholic Church and what do they have to do to become a saint in the Catholic Church. But of course, I give her the, the Baptist answer, right? And I just said, well, all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And she knew the answer, right? 
that, but really, that's true. We're all saints. And God calls us saints long before we live like saints. Isn't that true? Anyone here say, no, I pretty much reached perfection before Jesus called me? No, of course not, right? And we see that. And, and that brings me to a point. I, and I think this point is very important for us to understand that even at our weakest points, God sees our, our potential over our failures. Doesn't he? Even at our weakest point, God sees our potential over our own failures. And so there may be times in life, and I've been there, I'm sure that you've been there, and if, if you've been in, in your relationship with God for a while, you come to that point where you just feel like, oh, I failed so many times. You know, like, God can't use me, he's going to use somebody else. And, and you get to that point, and, and you know, even in those weakest points, God sees what he could turn you into if you'll let him renovate you. If you'll let him renovate you, this is what I see. And even when you're weak, he could say, you know, he could say, you know what? The Lord is with you, you strong person. Or, or when, when you're tempted, and, and, oh, you know what? The Lord is with you, courageous, faithful person. Or, or when you're weak in any area of your life, God, the Lord is with you. He could call you something that's not what you feel like you are at that moment. Because at our weakest points, God sees our potential over our failures. By the way, that potential isn't because of who we are. That potential is because of what He can do through us, right? You don't look at a house and assume and you, that's a fixed upper and say, Wow, I think that if you just let this house go, it'll turn into something. No, you see the potential because you are the one changing it. That's what we see in our lives too. Our potential isn't because we have, we've got great skills or we... No, our potential is because if we let God do what he wants to do, he can fix us up. Amen? But even at our weakest points, God sees our potential. Just like a person who looks at a fixer-upper and says, I can do something with this. That's what God does for us. Let's continue verse 13. Look at how Gideon uh, replies. Verse 13. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord... If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Here, I, there's another word that I would use to describe this attitude. And we've already talked about the, how he was a coward. I would say that he was also a skeptic. He was a skeptic. He was a doubter. Uh, here, he's... he's He's basically saying, you know, if the Lord were with us, then I don't think all these bad things would be happening. I don't see it. And I just don't think it's going to happen. I, I don't see it. And, uh, you know, the Lord is with me? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's what Gideon, how Gideon is responding. This isn't the response of a hero yet. But he was a skeptic at the beginning of the story. Verse 14, we read this. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Wow. So here we see God doing exactly what he did in the, in the previous verse, but now he's, he's expanding it and giving details to it. He's saying, you're not just a mighty man. And you, but he says, go in this might of yours, in this, this, this strength of yours, which is not much at this point, He's saying, and you shall save Israel from the Midianites. And then he reminds them that it's because of the presence of God that he can do that. 
why have I not sent you? Have I not sent you to do this? Now, it's interesting here that up to this point, the conversation has been between the angel of the Lord and him. And uh, this time it says that the Lord turned to him and said. So this could be that the angel spoke first and that the Lord chimed in. Or it could mean that the angel of the Lord was the Lord himself because the word angel means the messenger. And so some theologians say that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ where Christ himself came but in either way, the message is coming from Yahweh. The message is coming from the Lord. And he's basically saying this. He's saying, get in. If you would just realize who you were, and you would realize what you were capable of, not because of you, but because of who you are in your relationship to me. That's what God is saying. You would be capable of saving all of Israel from the hand of the Israelites just have to recognize that it's God who's calling you, that it's God who's sending you, and you can make a difference. That brings me to another point. The point is this. If God is in it, you can do anything. Now, that sounds almost like a, um, like a fortune cookie kind of slogan, but let's not, let's, let's not go pass over it too quickly here for a moment. First of all, it's important because I think as Christians, we make the mistake of Focusing on, on one or, or one of two halves of this, of this point. First of all, if God is in it, what does that mean? That means that it doesn't mean that we can just come up with what we want to accomplish in life and now God has to somehow try to oblige. Is that what you read in this verse? And it's, that's not what I read in these verses. But what I do see is that if we are willing to, to surrender all of our desires of what we want to accomplish and say, all right, Lord, I'm willing to, let, to be used in whatever way you want to use me, then God can use us in incredible, miraculous ways. Amen? Is there anything that we couldn't do if we were being used by God to do it according to his will, his plan? No. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. Could God start a revival that swept our entire nation, no matter how ungodly it is right now, through the life of one person? Yes, he could. He could do that. He could, he could, he could do that. Why? Because he's God. He's God. And we tend to think so small because God is big. And, 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 uh, and uh, we, we, we keep thinking that we have to do it. It's God. If God is in it, you can do anything. Look at verse 15. See how he responds, because he still didn't get it. So he said to him, that's he, Gideon, said to him, the Lord, he says, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. This brings me to the third description of, of the before image of, of Gideon that we have before this divine transformation. He was a coward, he was a skeptic, and he was also fearful. He's saying, who am I? I can't do this. I'm a weak man from a weak family, from a weak clan and a weak tribe. Who am I to do this? I can't do that. By the way, I think that statement right there that we just read in verse 15 embodies all three of the before images of Gideon. It was a cowardly thing to say. Uh, it was a skeptical thing to say. It was a fearful thing to say. He was afraid. I can't do this. I'm, I'm afraid. I just can't do this. And he was just too paralyzed by fear to even act, let alone be the hero of the story at the beginning. But once again, for a third time, God affirms him in the next verse. 
before we find verse 16. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Gideon didn't believe it at this point. Now, we have the, the blessing of hindsight. We, this is all history for us. And we know what he ended up doing. We know that God was right, right? We knew that, but he didn't believe it in that moment. Have you ever been to that point in your life where, where God was saying, you, you can go do this, and you're saying, I can't do that. I can't do that. Like the, the Bible might say, uh, to be, how to be a good husband. Like, I can never be a good husband because of where I'm at. Or maybe the Bible says, this is how you, how you can use that gift that I've given. Oh, I can never use my gift in that way. I can never. The Bible says to go, to go evangelize. Oh, I can never evangelize in this country. I'm just too afraid of. God tells us to do all these things. And we say, oh, I can never do that. We just, and we're, we're self-defeated. How many of you ever, just to be honest, how many of you ever been at that point where you just felt self-defeated? Anyone? been there. You know, I remember one time when I, when I was in seventh grade, just to give it, a, just to give a little an idea or analogy, really, in seventh grade, I was 98 pounds, so I was a little guy, 98 pounds. I joined the wrestling team, and uh, we were a fairly new wrestling team. We had wrestled a couple of schools, and, uh, uh, and, and I was doing pretty good, so I, I had our first tournament, you know, our actual tournament. And I was excited for it because I thought, I might actually win a medal. Now, in seventh grade, I had never had a medal, so that was a big deal to me. Now I look back and I kind of laugh at that, right? But, um, but to me, that was a big deal. I could maybe win a medal. And uh, so I didn't know who the first guy was. I was wrestling, but I went in there, and man, was he strong. And, and I just felt, this guy is strong. And not only was he strong, his techniques were better than mine. And, uh, and so I, I just had to fight as hard as I could to not get pinned. And then at the end of the, the match, I lost by points. So here, my official tournament record, zero and one. Not a great start, right? And I just remember, I was defeated. I, I just went over to the, the benches by myself, and I just sat there. And, I, and, uh, and then my brother, Tom, who was a, who was a really good wrestler, and, um, in fact, he took states that year, um, he came up to me, and he comes alongside, and he says, Hey, Dave, I want to, I want to take you somewhere. Okay, so I went with him. He takes me over to the table, and, and, and he sh- there's all of the medals laid out. And he showed me the, 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 the medals for my category. And he, he points to the gold medal. He says, see that medal? Yeah. He says, that's not yours today. It's impossible. Can't happen. See the silver medal? Yeah. That's not yours either because you're, you're only allowed one loss to get the silver medal, and it has to come later in the day than your first match, right? So it's like, that's not yours either. Thanks, brother. You're really making me feel good here. But he said, but you see this bronze medal? And I said, yeah. He said, that's yours. You're going to take that home today. And I I think that's the closest in my life I can remember actually feeling kind of how Gideon probably felt in that moment. Because God is saying, you know what you're going to do? You're going to accomplish something great. You are going to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. But... How does he feel? There's no way. I'm, I'm, I'm defeated. I mean, I have to hide, even if I want to have grain, I have to hide it from the Midianites. How on earth am I going to rescue all of Israel from the Midianites? It's not going to happen. That's where we find Gideon at the beginning of the story. And uh, let's continue to, to read about this divine transformation. And this is where the story takes its turn. And what we find, actually, are, are six faith 
building experiences. I'm going to go through three of them uh, quickly right now, but uh, next week we'll go through the rest. But there were, there were these faith-building experiences that God used, used in Gideon's life to totally transform him from being this coward, skeptical, fearful man into the man that he became by the end of the story. Let's look at verse 17 through 24. <clears throat> and we'll see the first experience. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. So this one is, it, it actually comes up at the, at the request of Gideon. He's like, how do I know who you are? There's this question of identity of who this angel of the Lord is, who Yahweh is. It's like, that you may have been the God of my fathers, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know you personally. And uh, so there's this question of identity. Verse 18. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. God says, I will wait. Verse 19. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. It's the word Yahweh for the word Lord there. It's in all caps. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Um, then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace, or Yahweh Shalom. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abbey's rites. Wow, so we have this first of, the, of these six divine transformation experiences, and we have this experience with, with the altar. And a couple things I think that are interesting to see here. Um, first of all, if there's, a, there's a pun going on here. There's a play on words. Or actually, uh, let me, uh, let, let me uh, get to that in a second. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But let me uh, uh, say this. It is important to note here that the way Gideon prepared the offering was not the way you prepare an offering for Baal. This was the way you prepared an offering for the Lord, for Yahweh. It's exactly found in the book of Leviticus. So he, he, off, he makes this offering, but it's not an offering to Baal. It's an offering that you would only make to the Lord. And then as, as would happen, as per the book of Leviticus, they would offer this offering to the Lord, and then the Lord would consume it. And so uh, he... He offers this offering to the Lord, and guess what the, the angel of the Lord does? He reaches out his staff, touches it, and it is consumed by fire. So what does that tell Gideon? He is dealing with Yahweh. Not with Baal. He's, with, he's dealing with Yahweh. And so he, he, this question of identity, of, of whom, you know, or with whom am I speaking? Who is calling me? Who's... Yeah, that whole question of identity is now answered. He's, it's Yahweh. The one who, who requires a certain way for his, for his offerings to be made, and he, and he accepted that offering. That was a sign that God was saying, that's why it said, 
And uh, in verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. He was an angel of Yahweh. And so it answers this question. It clears up the issue of identity. And what I, we find very interesting here, too, is he was surprised that he lived. He said, um, but I'll read it. Um, he said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I've seen him. In, I'm, a, I'm still alive. And that's why God comes back with, do not fear. You will not die. Said, wow, I've been in the presence of Yahweh, and I'm alive. That in itself is a miracle, right? I can't believe it. So this question of identity is, is, is put to rest. The second experience comes at God's request. Look at this, verse 25 and 26. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar uh, to, the, to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So we have this, uh, this second experience, this faith-building experience with the altar. And he told him to tear down the altar of Baal, which belonged to his father. So his father was involved in this Baal worship. Tells him to tear it down, offer a bull, which, by the way, the image of Baal worship is a bull. So it's sacrilegious to Baal worship to do what he's about to do. He's supposed to, to chop it down and, and offer a bull to the Lord. Right? This is a big deal. Because Baal worshippers don't take kindly until you chop it down their, their things. Now, if you remember, just a, a few moments ago, we had talked about how... how God saw Gideon's potential even when Gideon didn't. Here's where we see that pun, that play on words that's taken place. The word Gideon in Hebrew means hacker. Hacker. Now, this is pre-computers. So I know that I, if you're a teen, you're probably thinking, oh, so he's a hacker. No, he's a hacker in the sense of chopping, right? That's what it, it's like chopper. He's a hacker. That's what his name means. And so God is coming to him and saying, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hack down the, the, the altar to Baal. Do what you were made to do. Do what you were called to do. Be Gideon for me for a moment here. Is what he's getting at. Same root word for chopping that down. It's kind of cool. The, the play on words that you find in Hebrew sometimes. It's, and you, you definitely see that here. So Gideon, be Gideon. Be a hacker. And chop down that idol. By the way, he told them he was going to rescue the people from the hand of the Midianites. That doesn't start with war. It starts with returning to God. You want to see our country do well again? It starts with turning to God. You get right spiritually, everything else is going to fall in line. Amen? But when we try to solve everything by just, just through policies and this and that, and I think we, and I, I, and I praise the Lord for our representatives and all the people that, that that are out there trying to put in policies that are good. I, I praise the Lord for them. But that's not the starting point. What really needs to take place is a change of heart. For people to return to God. That's what our country needs. That's what, that's what Israel needed. And that's what God started with Gideon saying, you've got to turn to, to me first. You've got to get rid of idols. There's no room for idols in God at the same table. Amen? And we see that clearly here. And so... 
So we see Gideon being called to be Gideon, to be this hacker. saying, do what you were made to do. Verse 27. Let's see how he does. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. That's awesome, isn't it? However, look at the second half of the verse. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Not very heroic, right? But he obeyed. He did as the Lord said. He was afraid to do it, but he did it. That was a step in the right direction. He did what was right, and, uh, and he's blessed for that. And, and that brings me to another point I think is very interesting here, and that's this. And Dad Brock used to say this. The guy who started Lake Ann Camp, uh, uh, Dad Brock used to say this. God's ultimate goal for us is perfection, but today's goal is just growth. Isn't there a truth to that? Uh, that what God wants for us is, is way out there, but he's saying, today I just want you to work towards that. Just take that step. For Gideon, just chopping down the altar was a big step of faith. Why? Because he could be killed for that. The men of his own household could kill him for that. Uh, let alone the men of the city would love to kill him for that because this was an image of their God. Their, and, and he was afraid because of that. And so we see that take place. Now, I'd love to read the whole story. I wish we had time to read the whole story. If we were going through Judges, I would do that. But I'm just going to tell you right now, the townsmen did not kill Gideon, just as God had said. In fact, Gideon's father stands up for him and says, wait a minute, if Baal were real, if Baal were strong like we, thought he, or we, like we think he is, couldn't he have defended himself and so Gideon's father and the townspeople and all, all decide, you know what? You're right. If Baal, can't, if Baal can't stand up for himself, why are we worshiping him? Guess what? That's the starting point for the turn of the country. When they realize all the things they're trusting on are not worth it. And they're false foundations of, uh, of, for the life. And that's what we find going on right here. And we see that happening. So that issue of the, the altar clears up the, the issue, really, of God's power over all of his other, over all other gods. And so, not only is Yahweh, that identity is now taken care of, but, but does Yahweh have power over the other gods? He sure does. You have to put away the other gods in order to follow Yahweh. And we see that taken care of right here. There's a third one that I'll talk about today. There's this, this event of the fleece. Let me read it first. Uh, we read verses 36 through 40. And then we'll wrap up from there. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. By the way, that's a bad way to start a sentence. Lord, if you're going to do what you said. There's no ifs when God has said. Amen? But we still see he was still cowardly. He was still fearful. He was still skeptical. Then he said this. Look. I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Verse 38, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the, on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. 
Uh, by the way, this is one of the most abused texts in Scripture. Isn't it? Now we see the context. I've heard this preached on how to set your fleece before the Lord. How to discern God's will by setting the fleece before the Lord. And the idea is that you, you put some test before the Lord and the Lord's kind of forced to oblige. That's not what this text is saying at all, is it? In fact, this text is, is here to show us where Gideon was actually at. And, and it was not a high place of, of courage. It was, it was a place of cowardliness, right? For those who are in, in the, the Principles Bible Study class that we teach uh, servant leaders, this is a perfect example of how sometimes a narrative can be um, descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. In other words, it describes perfectly exactly what happened, but it's not saying that you should follow that. And it's not prescribing that that's the way to do it. In fact, in context, which is why it's so important to understand context when we read Scripture, we have to see it in, in, the, in its context and understand. In context, this is saying Gideon was lacking in faith at this point of his life that he needed this. And yet God is still willing to take him where he was at, go down to that level, and meet him where he, where he was at. Isn't that awesome? And to think that he was doing it all wrong. There is nowhere in Scripture that says that's the way to find the, the, will, of, uh, the will of God and discern the will of God. In fact, the Bible condemns it in both Testaments. You go to Deuteronomy 6, 16, I think it is. And then in Matthew, uh, uh, Jesus condemns it in Matthew chapter 4 as well. Saying it's, it's condemnable to put the Lord to the test. You don't do that. However, God took Gideon where he was at. And he did. He, he went. To, he went down to that level anyway. You know, I see a loving father in that, don't you? What do you do when you have a child? To relate to that child, hopefully you don't just relate to him like this, but you get down on your knees, right? Maybe get all the way down on the level of your children, and you play with them, and you interact with your children, so you're eye to eye with your children. Why do you do that? Because you love them. If you coming down to them, this—that's what I see here. In the, in the fleece, we see God willing to come down to the level of Gideon and say, I'm going to relate to you right where you're at. Oh, you don't have a lot of faith yet? That's okay. I'm going to build your faith. And he's got three more examples. He's got three more things. He's going to build his faith. He's going to continue to work with Gideon where he's at to turn him into what he knows he can become someday. Isn't that a loving picture of how God interacts with us? Comes right down to our level and just talks with us. We're weak. We're cowards. Okay, God comes to us, works with us, deals with us. It, to me, as I look at the, the issue of the, the, the fleece, I think it, it actually clears up uh, a different issue altogether. I think it clears up the issue of, of God's patience. We see this loving fatherhood of God where he, he is patient with us. Boy, the, his patience is so thick when you see how he's dealing with Gideon. He, he would have had every right to say, Gideon, you know what? I've said it in my word. I've been honest every time. I have never broken a promise in my life. Why on earth are you going to test me and test me and test me and test me? He would have had every right, humanly speaking. But instead, he says, Gideon, you're weak. Yeah, it's sin, but I love you. I'll come down to you. I'll get down here with you, and I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to build you up. That's the guy we serve. That's a guy worth serving isn't it? That leaves Baal in the dust. No matter what Baal can offer, it leaves him in the dust. Well, by way of, of, tra of transformation and looking at this, we'll, we'll, we'll look at uh, 
the next three next week. But I, for way of application, the, the what I call the let God renovate you seg section, I want to look at each of the three main points that we brought out of this and look at some ways we can apply it. So looking at that first point where we talked about how even at our weakest points, God sees our potential over our failures. I would say application number one is don't give up on yourself. God hasn't. Now what I, I'm not saying that to be some kind of a Joel Osteen uh, type of just build, your, build up yourself. In it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there can be a point in your life where you, you say, I, I'm too weak. I, Lord, this week, if I think about all the things I've done wrong, I have acted in selfishness when I shouldn't have, or I have, I have said things I shouldn't have had, or I have thought things I shouldn't have had, or I had opportunities to do what was right, and I didn't take those opportunities. It's, oh, Lord, you can't use me, and we give up on ourselves. And what we read and what we understand in this text is that God sees our potential if we surrender ourselves to him. And that means there is nobody in here, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter what what heinous crimes you could have committed, you turn your life over to God and he can do amazing and great things. So don't give up on yourself. God has not given up on you. The second point that we talked about is that if God is in it, you can do anything. Uh, I would say this then, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is with you. Remember what he said to, to Gideon in verse 12? God is with you. The Lord is with you. In verse 14, the Lord is with you. In verse 16, the Lord is with you. And we see that over and over and over again. So I would say, set your, set your ambitions aside and say, I'm going to be in whatever God's in. And then don't be afraid of that because he'll get you there. God's call is God's enablement. And then the last thing we saw, how God's ultimate goal for us is perfection, but today's goal is just growth. I'd say start with some small steps of faith. Just take those steps of faith, and maybe he's not going to call you to, to, to do way more than you could do today. He's going to ask you, to, though, to step in faith and do something that's going to be scary for you. For Gideon, it was chopping down that idol, knowing that the townspeople could, would, would potentially kill him for it. And God said, I want you to take that step of faith, because this is a step towards becoming the Gideon who not only hacks down the altar of, of Baal, but hacks down an army of innumerable millions. And I need you to learn this step first. Take those small steps of faith and just open yourself up and say, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's that next step for me? What do you want me to commit to doing? And do it. I can't play the part of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what he's going to call you to do. But by way of invitation in a few moments, I'm just going to ask you, as, as we sing. In fact, I'd like to ask if, if the worship team is cool with coming back up to, to sing the, the song Always. That just song really uh, hits what this text is all about. But as you guys come forward, I'm going to ask you in just a few moments when we sing, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourselves or come up and give a testimony or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you to come up to the, to, the, to the platform area here and just do business with God. And maybe what you need today is just some more courage. Maybe you could say, Lord, I'm going through some struggles and I do not have the courage and I know what the right thing to do is, but I just don't have the courage to do it. Then lay that before the Lord today. Now, I will say this. If there's anyone in here that could say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I have never accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I don't know for sure. I, I don't know for sure that, that I am His. And you can say if God is in it, but I don't know if God's in it with me because I don't have a relationship with Christ. 
then in that case, I would ask you to come and talk to me. And don't worry about anyone else. Just come and talk to me. And I will, I will have someone share with you from God's word how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. For those who are believers, I'm just going to ask you to come up and do business with God. And just ask him for courage where courage is needed. And say, Lord, I'm committing myself to whatever you call me to do, no matter how scary it might seem to me. You willing to do that? Let me pray, and then we'll sing that song together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the examples that you use in Scripture of men who are flawed like us. And you can do great and mighty things with them. Lord, our country needs some shofetim. They need some people to come in and start tearing down the altars of our culture. They need men and women to start proclaiming the truth in a culture that is hostile to that truth. Lord, we need that. So I'm praying right now that you would raise up an army of people from starting from this room right here, right now. That there would be people willing to make that commitment and that they would show that by standing up bravely, coming to, to the altar and making that commitment to you. That's my prayer. And I pray this in Christ's name.